You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. For my birthday a couple months ago, Diana got me a beautiful set of kitchen knives and a class, a cooking class, uh, like a knife skills class. And I got to go take that the other night, finally, after months it happened, and it was really cool. It was great. We did a Mediterranean feast. Yum. Learned a little. Um, it was a very beginner's class, and you know I've been cooking for a while. But it, there was a couple new things I learned, and it was also really nice to go in and have somebody teaching you and sort of be like, "Oh, good, I've I've been doing that right." Right. That you is know? a nice thing. Yeah. I did. I did hope. That it would be some like dope chef <laughs> knife ninja skills, uh-huh. but I guess I should have expected more because it's definitely for like couples to take. I did, uh, and, yeah. You know, I I couldn't go with you, so you're all alone. <laughs> it was just me and ten couples. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking like a real loser in there. Be like, I'm professionally married, actually. So <laughs> right, I frequently, as often as I could, said, "Well, my wife doesn't." <laughs> They're all you know, like. She lives in Niagara. Uh, yeah. <laughs> My wife, you wouldn't know her. Yeah. <laughs> She's very No pretty. one would. <laughs> <laughs> She's no. beautiful, but she never leaves the house in <laughs> Canada. <laughs> oh, it was really good. It was really good food. I did learn some seasoning tricks and, oh, and I learned what to do with an extra bulb of garlic. You just, you just throw it in the oven. You just cook it until it's soft and you just squeeze it out like a paste. And then you just can put that on some bread or whatever. I'm in. Yeah. I know if you roast garlic, it's kind of sweet. Like it's not the, it doesn't give you the kick that garlic does when you cook it in a dish or like on a pan or whatever. Another thing I learned, uh, they said the more you cut garlic, the more spicy and garlicky it is. 
Oh, um, really? Yeah. And so if you really want to get a lot of flavor oh. out of your garlic, chop it very fine. And if you just want to keep it kind of mild, you know, just slice it a few times. Oh, and then no, you just bake sense. the whole thing like that. You roast those cloves whole mm-hmm. and they come out almost sweet. Uh, yeah, I couldn't go because I was in Orlando. They have their winter mini fringe festival yeah. in in January. So I got to go to that for just a couple days and see a few shows and couple our days, submissions nothing. are open. You were there for like, I know, like 18 24 hours. hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we drove in, we saw two shows, we fell asleep, we woke up, we saw two shows and we drove home. <laughs> That's how we roll over here. It was crazy, but it was worth it. It was really great to go. Well, speaking of theater, speaking of weddings... Speaking of Canadians, all the things we've mentioned. All the things we've mentioned. In the last 10 That's minutes. True. <laughs> uh, we've got a brand new episode today. I, I didn't think this was going to happen, but in doing the research for our last episode, I just came up with pages and pages of, of, of other things to talk about around Jeopardy. Because, mm-hmm. you know, last week we learned about Merv and Julianne Griffin. They were the TV power couple who created Jeopardy, which is, of course, one of the most popular game shows in the world. I really thought that was going to be all the ridiculous romance that we got out of it, because, I mean, it's a it's a fast paced quiz show where contestants just spit out rapid fire questions. They're all trying to out trivia themselves for for big prizes. So I didn't think there'd be a lot of romance involved. But somehow several people actually had their uh, their buzzers pressed by their opponents. <laughs> Sparks went flying after the final Jeopardy answer was questioned. In more ways than one. Uh-huh. And uh, we're going to get to know some of their stories today. But first, honestly, we've just got to hear all about the super sweet romance between one of the world's best TV hosts, Alex Trebek, and his beloved wife, Jean. Let's do it. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. All right, so to me, Alex Trebek is like right up there with Mr. Rogers. Uh, Dolly Parton, Bob Ross, Sherry Lewis, uh, you know, I don't know, Keanu Reeves, <laughs> you know, Brendan Fraser, just these people that you look at and you're like, you're just a kind person mm-hmm. and you want goodness in this world. A sweet angel. Yeah. And like in doing research about him, it's really interesting to find that he is very different from his Jeopardy persona, but also a real piece of shit. No, no, it seems <laughs> like this kidding. is very true too. It's, it's an interesting contrast. <laughs> yeah, and now we're gonna expose Alex Trebek for the monster he is. No, no, Alex Trebek was born in 1940 in Ontario, Canada. His father was actually born in Ukraine, and his last name was originally Terebichuk. Terebichuk. But we learned in Pam Pollock's book, Who Was Alex Trebek, that his father changed it after he moved to Canada, so it was easier for English speakers to pronounce. Tale as old as time. Alex Trebek's mother was Lucille Lagasse. Oh. Okay. But (laughs) come on, wouldn't it be cool if it was Lucille Ball? Like, wouldn't that blow everybody's mind? I don't know. I'd be like, Alex Trebek was a Nepo baby. (laughs) As a child, Alex Trebek was very protective of his younger sisters. And one time when he was just seven years old, he saw his little five-year-old sister playing out on a frozen lake. Very common in 
the Northeast. Canada, yeah. Now, he ran over. He stopped her. He said, no, you can't go out there. It's dangerous. You shouldn't be playing on a lake unless you absolutely know it's completely frozen. So he did that thing where he was like, you know, to show you how dangerous this is, I'm going to go test the lake. Mm. And this seven-year-old Alex Trebek walks out on this frozen lake. And, of course, the ice creaked and cracked and he fell straight through into the frozen river. Oh, my God. It was only because a rail worker happened to be passing by uh, and saw him and pulled him out of the water that Alex was saved. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. There's got to be a better way. Like, can you not throw a cement block or something? Well, but then you would break it. I mean, weaken the integrity, right? I guess so. <laughs> I, just, I feel that they should have come up with a better way. That's yeah. all I'm saying. <laughs> After all this time is. dealing with frozen lakes. <laughs> There's got to be some method. That just a seven-year-old didn't know. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) He's seven. He doesn't know the best way to do everything. (laughs) Moving on. Alex Trebek grew up in a French-English bilingual household, Mm -hmm. and he went to both French and English-speaking schools, and he went to a prep school starting in ninth grade. Jealous of that. I wish I grew up in a bilingual household (laughs) because no chance I'm going to learn it now. (laughs) But the same year that he went to prep school, Alex's parents divorced and his mother moved to Detroit, Michigan to be near her sisters. And Alex started acting out. You know, that's common with children of divorce. His grades suffered. At the end of the semester, the prep school told him not to come back next year. Wow. Which is a pretty rude thing for a prep school to say. But I guess you got to keep your grades to a certain level, a certain standard. So they were like, get out of here, Alex. Yeah, we're preparing you for, you know, what happens when you don't show up. And you're not prepared. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So his dad drove out to the school and begged them to let Alex stay. So he did get another chance. But from then on, he had to be sure to be like an exemplary student. And he excelled in all his classes. I'm trying to think of the headmaster who pulls a young Alex Trebek in and says, you're just no good with facts, kid. You just can't (laughs) learn things. You know, we teach you stuff. We ask you questions and you don't have the answers, Alex Trebek. (laughs) He's like, one day I'll show you. (laughs) Right. I'll have all the answers. (laughs) Now, after Alex graduated, he joined a military program that would help him pay for college, but he only lasted three days. Mm. That's three days longer than I would last. <laughs> the first two days, he was harassed by older students who loved to haze the new recruits. Rude. But on day three, the final straw came when the academy told him he had to cut his hair. <sighs> oh, no. Trebek wrote in his memoirs, quote, I had a good head of hair. (laughs) So he's like, hell no. And he called his dad. He said, I'm coming home. Wow. Now, Alex said his dad was incredibly supportive throughout his life. He wrote that his father wasn't a well-educated man and he wasn't particularly bright. But, quote, he was just all heart. He just poured his love out for me. It didn't matter what I did. I was never a disappointment to him. Hmm. Alex got his first job as a bellhop at the hotel where his dad worked as a chef. And he actually had an incredible work ethic, and he was seriously dedicated to punctuality. He's one of those guys who was like, if you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. Right. I can just see him in a little outfit. Oh, a little Did bellhop outfit? Did they have to outfit? wear the little bellhop outfit at this point? I'm going to assume, because I want to, that yes. Yes. Alex okay, Trebek and had the hat. little bellhop uniform. Yep, yes. with that little hat. Yes. I going up there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I wish he had hosted Jeopardy as a bellhop just one time <laughs> to get in touch with his roots. Uh, but look, Alex Trebek, Mr. Punctuality, doing really well in school, but he was not all goody two-shoes. One of the more surprising facts about this guy, this uh, this calm, cool, collected Canadian, mm. is that apparently Alex Trebek curses like a sailor. 
What? I can't even imagine. Amazing. He but, sounds so classy. Like, his voice is so classy that right. I feel like if I heard him say a curse word, I would just laugh. <laughs> but I don't Maybe you'd be really scared. I don't know. <laughs> some shit's going down. Your family grew up with some cursing, right? Oh, yeah. Mine didn't. Mm-hmm. Like, when I was a kid, like, no one in my family cursed. So it was weird to hear my parents curse when I did. I don't know what changed because we definitely weren't cursing for a long time. Yeah. And then it was like my brother was like feeling himself at whatever age boys do. And they're (laughs) like, I'm going to start, you know, because we loved action movies. So we'd watch like Legal Weapon, you know, whatever, whatever. So you would just say whatever quote. Yeah. And of course, it makes people laugh when a kid curses. Oh, my God. So you keep doing it because you want to make people laugh. Yeah. Anyway, so I think it was more about that. But now now we all curse. So I don't know what happened. (laughs) We were a bad influence on our parents or something because they used to care. But now they don't care. Right. (laughs) They're over it. Well, Alex Trebek said that, you know, he was too good about everything else. He needed something different. He didn't smoke or drink or do any drugs or anything. So he needed a vice uh, to to make himself stand out. Feel like one of the guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, quote, I started saying shit. Words so bitches eating buckets could eat his <laughs> Mr. Trebek. Okay. That's not a real quote. That's just what I, am- <laughs> I like to imagine that he sounded like. <laughs> In reality, he did say that he did need this vice, but quote, it didn't help me become one of the guys. It really just made me look like a jerk. All right, fair enough. Just fair. Well, he took his work seriously, and in 1961, he was studying at the University of Ottawa during the day and working at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation at night. He took every gig to come his way and eventually ended up reading the CBC National Radio News. He definitely had a good radio news voice. Oh, yeah. In 1966, he hosted his first quiz show, a game for high schoolers, called Reach for the Top. He hosted classical music programs on the radio. He hosted sports games like curling, horse racing, and skating. So the classy sports. He was (laughs) not like calling the football game. (laughs) Well, the Canadian sports. The Canadian sports. (laughs) Uh, He even did his own morning radio DJ show in the early 70s. That's when the cursing came in handy. Yeah, right. And in 1974, Alex Trebek found a woman he would soon call his wife. Her name was Elaine Howard of Columbus, Ohio. And if you were around in the 1960s, you might know her better by her pseudonym, Teddy Howard, which she used while working as a Playboy bunny. Oh, okay, Alex. Hot to trot. Elaine and her first husband, Louis Calais, moved to Toronto and they had a daughter named Nikki. While she was there, she started a party planning business and a promo agency. Obviously, this is after she stopped being a Playboy bunny. Mm -hmm. And eventually, she even got her own talk show with CHCH-TV titled Call Calais, where she would really push the boundaries by talking about sex topics. And remember, this is the late 60s, so kind of a big deal. They were like, sex? Uh That's the one word you can't say on television. (laughs) Yeah, right. On that show, she interviewed a woman named Xaviera Hollander who was someone who had gone from working as a call girl to eventually becoming New York City's leading madam in the 1960s. Now, Hollander was arrested and forced to leave the U.S., and this is where she ended up doing this interview in Canada. Oh. So, future episode alert. Yeah. we got to see if we can dig up the story a of leading Xavier madam Hollander. in New York. Yeah, I know, right? Now, we could not find this interview, but apparently it was salacious enough to get Elaine's show canceled. 
too far, Kalkale. <laughs> You've gone too far. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine the question she would have asked New York City's leading madam. Oh my you know, God. that would get her show canceled in the Thanks. late 60s. So it might have been, you know, like, did your skirts go all the way up to your knees? Know, you know, like one guy touched my foot. And they're <gasps> like, ah! No, she might have named names. That's what I want to know. Oh, I'm like, she might have said somebody's name that uh-huh. they were like, Mm-mm, we can't tell anybody that he was visiting, you know, your brothel or whatever. Late 60s. <laughs> oh, Trudeau's dad. <gasps> Remember we did the yes, episode about Pierre. him? Oh, no. Maybe Pierre that was Trudeau. A speculation Station. Xavier Hollander spilled the beans about Pierre Trudeau. <laughs> and they had to cancel Call Calais after that. Or she's like, the wife, uh, Mrs. Trudeau, came and met Mick Jagger. Yeah, right. That's place. it. That's it. <laughs> and they were like, turn it up. Pull the plug. <laughs> well, after that show got canceled, Elaine ended up hosting a more typical morning show called Canada AM. This job was also short-lived because apparently there was quickly a mutual agreement that she was not a good fit for a typical morning show. She's like, I don't like to get up this early. <laughs> yeah. I'm really more of a late night kind of gal. I mean, <laughs> I got fired for being too outspoken on my sex talk show. So maybe I shouldn't be waking people up in the morning. <laughs> That's such a good point. Right. <laughs> you want somebody very chill in the morning. Uh-huh. But getting and losing this job did lead to her meeting Alex Trebek. Now, she and Trebek got married in 1974, a year after her divorce from her first husband. Unfortunately, there's very little information about their actual marriage, Mm. except that they did not have any kids together. But Alex did adopt Elaine's daughter, Nikki, who was six when they got married. Their marriage lasted seven years. They divorced amicably in 1981, and they stayed on good terms. Elaine went on to found the company Scent Seal, which created like a new system for packaging perfume samples. Maybe she's the reason you get those uh, magazines with the little flap that you can open and smell it. Maybe she came up with that because that sounds like a scent seal. I don't know. Uh, Speculation station. She invented the flappy thing. (laughs) (laughs) She married a TV producer named Peter Karras in 2001, and she's mostly stayed out of the spotlight. Of course, Alex Trebek did not stay out of the spotlight, (laughs) decidedly stepped into it. Uh (laughs) A few years after their divorce, he got one of the biggest spotlights in the world. We already told y'all about the Jeopardy reboot in the last episode and how Lucille Ball encouraged Merv Griffin to hire Alex Trebek for the job. And sure enough, in 1984, he taped his first episode. In an interview with Washington Post, Lois Feinstein, a contestant from the reboot's first episode, said it took two and a half hours to film, but Alex, quote, maintained calm through the whole thing. That's wild. That is great. And for two and a half hours for one episode, uh, I I don't remember if we mentioned this in the last episode, but normally they would shoot five episodes of Jeopardy per day in like like an eight hour day. That's just back to back. Boom, boom, boom. What took so long this time? Uh, he, they said it was just a lot of starts and stops, flubs. It was his first time. They were. It was the first time bringing the show back, so they just had to get back in the groove again. Mm. But he didn't get frustrated. He was just. He was like, "All right, let's take it again. Let's go again." That's a good. Try to keep, be Alex Trebek in my day today. You really do. <laughs> I mean, especially. <laughs> Uh, you know, when you're working in television, it, everything is so high stakes and everything is so everything is last minute. There is you, you're, you're going to be shocked if you ever walk into a TV set and see how unprepared everything is. Right. Because you can't because you don't know what's going to happen until it's happening. A lot of the time, like all the scripts and planning in the world can't really prepare you. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there is a lot of starting and stopping. Yeah. Um, and something like a live game show with a studio audience and everything. I can imagine that'd be 
you, you could get tripped up in a lot of places you wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. Another contestant, Jim Topkins McLean, who competed in 1989, said that while they were shooting, a kid shouted out an answer during the gameplay. And at first, Trebek was kind of irritated about this. But then he looked over, he realized that it was a very young boy, only like eight or nine years old. So Trebek walked over, sat down, and just talked to this kid. And Tompkins McLean said, quote, the whole audience fell in love with Alex Trebek in that moment. Oh. He said, quote, I'm a school teacher, and now that's how I scold people. I think, what would Alex Trebek do? <laughs> All these contestants talked about how Alex was so focused on them and who they were and what they did with their time. They all just felt so welcomed by him. In the early 90s, a lot of these contestants were at an age where they still remembered Art Fleming, who everybody loved as a Jeopardy host. Mm -hmm. So Alex had to really work to win them over, but he did it with like no problem at all. I bet that's pretty important to like make them all feel comfortable because yeah. then they can perform better. A hundred percent. You know, like if you made them feel really like I'm the guy, uh -huh. and, you know, people are watching for me, you probably would get a worse performance out of all, all the contestants. It's such like an added layer of like what's important about a yeah, game show host. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we'll talk about this a little later in the episode, but you show up to be on Jeopardy and they, they film five episodes a day. All the contestants show up at the same time and you don't know when you're going on. Oh, wow. They, they draw names to figure out who's next right before they tape. Hmm. So you might get there at 8 a.m. and not shoot your episode till four and not know you're shooting your episode till 330. You Dang. know, and so you've got that on top of a lot of these people have never been on camera before. So they've got to go be TV stars for 22 minutes mm. um, and remember everything they ever learned. <laughs> so <laughs> they're probably very stressed out. And meanwhile, someone's like, what's your favorite movie? And I'm like, I've never seen a movie or read <laughs> yeah, a book exactly. in my life. <laughs> my brain <laughs> right. is completely blank Can't and smooth. remember anything. <laughs> right. And the next six years, Alex was a celebrity bachelor. Ooh. The kindest, calmest, smartest man on camera who was apparently the quote most talking and mother loving mouth in Hollywood when he was off camera. <laughs> Just kidding. That's not a real quote. That's not a real quote. No. <laughs> no one ever said that about him and he never said it. <laughs> no. We assume. I mean, he curses. So speculation station, that's what it sounds like when he talks. He actually did say that at some point. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't sound like he was very lucky in love. Once in 1987, a contestant guessed that flamingos only mate once a year. And Trebek responded, quote, correct. Flamingos and I have a great deal in common. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's funny. I love an intellectual burn on yourself. Right. <laughs> but in 1990, Alex Trebek met the woman who he said was his soulmate, even though she was 24 years younger than him. And we will come back with more right after this. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. 
watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to the show, everybody. So Jean Curavan was born in 1963 in Greenlawn, New York, to a small, tight-knit Catholic family. She and her older brother, Chris, and her younger sister, Audrey, were incredibly close. And this made it really hard for her to leave New York for California to go to Pepperdine University. Mm. But she went, and while she was there, tragedy struck the family when her older brother was killed in a car accident. Mm. She finished college, but she was still really grief-struck. She didn't know how she would move forward. And she had a job doing bookkeeping for a man in Malibu in 1988. She kind of wondered, you know, do I stay on the West Coast or do I head back East? But then a friend of her boss started coming by regularly. And although he was two decades older than her, she thought he was just so charming and kind and smart. He'd come by the house for lunch, and she would join them. Eventually, they started playing backgammon together. In a blog on guidepost.com, Jean said, quote, I knew he was on some TV show, but he never said much about it, and I didn't ask. That's fair. Like, who wants to talk about work? Yeah, <laughs> boring. I don't, don't want to be that guy. Probably everybody asks you about yeah. this all the time. It's probably some boring show on C-SPAN. Yeah, right? <laughs> so one day, she called her mom back in New York, and she said, quote, I met this nice guy. His name's Alex Trebek. <laughs> and her mom <laughs> was like, what? Excuse me? She said, quote, don't you know who he is? She did not. Uh, <laughs> clearly not, Mom. Right. <laughs> I said it very casually. Now, Alex eventually did officially ask Jean out. He invited her to a first date dinner at his house. She said that she was so nervous that she was afraid she'd mispronounce her own name. Quote, but Alex is really down to earth, much more casual than he is on the show. Mm. Now, Alex said, you know, the age difference definitely was tough at first. He wrote in his memoirs, quote, but then I thought, the hell with it. We'll make it work. Jean herself said that she could tell he was a little, wanted to be cautious about that age gap. Mm -hmm. uh, so she didn't try to push him about it. They kind of took it one day at a time. And his friend Bob Murphy told People Magazine that although he and all his friends had been trying to set Alex up with someone for years, quote, he was looking for a Jean. And then he found her. And Jean had met a man who helped her find her way out of her grief and realized that, you know, a future could look bright and happy again. Oh. Yeah. On her 26th birthday in 1989, Alex gave Jean a pair of black velvet pants and a matching bolero jacket. Oh. You could not be more stylish in 1989 <laughs> right? than some black velvet <laughs> pants and a matching bolero jacket. <laughs> That's True. all I know. True. She probably had a nice, like, satin shell top underneath it. Oh, okay. Then he said, wait. Here's a little something else. And he handed her a little wicker box with a 16-carat sapphire ring surrounded by six carats of diamonds. Yikes. This is, sounds insane, and it's also in a wicker box, which right. is strange to me. <laughs> I feel like I'd have my Contrast. expectations would be, like, all over the place. <laughs> she told People Magazine, quote, it took my breath away. I mean, it was a rock. Right. Uh, more like a boulder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> She continued, quote, then he popped the question and I went all dumb. I think I said, what? <laughs> Which I love because <laughs> he clearly popped the answer and oh, then she yeah. questioned, what? <laughs> no, of course, she said yes. And soon her father, who Alex hadn't met yet, arranged an engagement party for them in New York on a boat just off the coast of Long Island. Alex was only two years younger than her dad. And he wrote, quote, when Jeannie introduced me to him, he took one look at me and said, I guess I won't be calling you son. Because <laughs> oh, we're the same age. Because we're the same age. <laughs> <laughs> 
They married on April 30th of 1990. And when the minister said, do you, Alex, take Jean to be your wife? Alex Trebek said, quote, the answer is yes. Yes. Of course. He said he got a big laugh. Of course. He's, he his to. memoir, he writes, uh, quote, that's me always going for the joke. Oh, yeah. That's what I think of Alex Trebek. First things first. He goes for the joke. <laughs> that's one of the things that you learn about in his memoir and mm-hmm. from Gene, though, is that off camera. That he's is just true, a real yeah. jokester all the time. Oh, that's cool. I feel like it's a lot of jokes like that, though, you know? Sure. <laughs> kind of dad jokes. Yeah, or like really smart jokes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, no, that, that no, that was good. <laughs> Took There was a thinker. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that joke you told two weeks ago? I just got it. I laughed so loud last night when I finally figured it out. I was I was perusing an atlas and, he, and I totally got the joke you told about the 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 Bering Strait. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, within three weeks of their wedding, they learned they were pregnant with their first son, Matthew. They said they knew what they were going to have kids, but they weren't expecting that quickly. Mm. Uh, but then in 1993, they had a daughter named Emily and their family also stayed very tight with his adoptive daughter, Nikki. Nikki worked on production in Jeopardy and other shows and movies. Uh, she was a model. She was a musician. She did all kinds of stuff. This does all kinds of stuff. She's still around. Nikki said that Alex, who she called dad, took her to a wine symposium in Hawaii where she got to sit next to Vincent Price. Ooh. She said, quote, needless to say, it was unforgettable. Yeah. And on that trip, Alex told Nikki that he was going to propose to Jean. Nikki said, quote, I could see how happy he was. Nikki herself is only a few years younger than Jean. So the two of them became more like close friends than, you know, stepmother and daughter. So my wife is almost the same age as my daughter. And I'm almost the same age as my wife's father. <laughs> a weird generational divide there. Families look like anything. OK. Hey, there you go. <laughs> and uh, some of the best stuff about the Trebek's as we've been saying, is learning how different he is in his personal life from the Alex Trebek that we see on camera. Mm-hmm. People Magazine called him, quote, a man who keeps his house, better homes and gardens neat, hangs dress shirts on light hangers and sports shirts on dark hangers, and keeps his spice rack alphabetically arranged. Wow. But Gene says that while it's his job to be astute, perfect, and articulate on the air, quote, he certainly doesn't want to be that way at home. People think he goes to bed in a suit. He doesn't. Maybe his birthday suit, right, hey. Gene? <laughs> Maybe he's got, like, Super Mario pajamas, something real <laughs> wacky you wouldn't expect. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's like Alex Trebek in his, like, dinosaur footy pajamas. He's like, I like to keep it young. Oh, amazing. <laughs> An audience member said on Quora that, quote, as soon as they said cut, Trebek practically turned into Robin Williams. Wow. He started telling jokes and did an imitation of Pacino and Scarface. (laughs) Then when the director says they're about to come back from commercial, he goes back to being game show host Alex. Okay. What impression of Pacino? (laughs) I know, right? Sniffing (laughs) up some shit like what? (laughs) Say hello to my little this. (laughs) What is friend? What is friend? That's right. Bang, 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 bang. <laughs> Others echoed similar sentiments, calling him silly, a goofball, and a prankster. Wow. He apparently loved it when he was parodied by Will Ferrell on SNL or Eugene Levy on SCTV. Which I learned, I hadn't seen the Eugene Levy one, but I learned that it very similarly was presented Trebek as someone who was very easily frustrated oh, okay. and got angry and mm-hmm. stuff, kind of like Will Ferrell did, which, of yeah. course, is like the antithesis. 
I know. I guess that is a funny joke, but that's Uh funny they both went the same direction. Mm -hmm. Alex Trebek also had a friendly rivalry with Wheel of Fortune host Pat Sajak. Mm. Several times for April Fool's Day, they would surprise everyone by switching shows without anyone knowing ahead of time. Oh, my God. I have to ask anyone, does that include, (laughs) like, did people show up at Wheel of Fortune for work? And they're like, what's Alex Trebek doing Yeah, what I read is that it was basically nobody knew. That's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) Now, Alex and Gene Trebek never really liked the Hollywood life too much. They are both homebodies. Alex liked to drive a pickup truck and do home repairs. She said his garage looked like a, you know, like a tinkerer's workshop. Mm. He was also apparently like tough as nails. Not only did he do the Olympic torch run in 96 uh, from Florida to Atlanta. In 2004, he actually fell asleep behind the wheel of his pickup and he flew 45 feet over an embankment and crashed into a ditch. Damn. Unfortunately, no one else was hurt. And Alex himself was back to shooting Jeopardy only four days later. Whoa. Which, I mean, if I stub my toe, I'm out of work for a week, <laughs> you know. In 2007, when Alex was 67 years old, he suffered a minor heart attack. His ex-wife, Elaine, was the one who rushed him to the hospital. And she said that she begged him there to retire from Jeopardy. But within a month, He was back shooting the show again. In 2018, he fell and hit his head on the bathtub and had to have surgery to remove blood clots from his brain. And once again, right back to work. Dang. And then, of course, I would love to not have to get to this, Mm -hmm. but we do have to get to the sad part. In 2019, Trebek was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. He and Gene had been traveling a lot. They were in Israel when he started having stomach pains, and they were visiting New York when his doctors called, saying they had some concerns. And when they caught the cancer, they saw that it had already spread to his stomach. Pancreatic cancer is one of the most dangerous because it spreads very quickly and has no early detection measures. So Gene said all the feelings of losing her brother rushed back to her. She was so worried how Alex would handle it. But she wrote that, quote, right away, he exhibited that same strength he always had. His attitude wasn't, why me? But much more, okay, what do we do? He did not hide the news from his audience, she wrote, but went public right away. And the outpouring of support and love was immediate and overwhelming. Gene points out that most of his fans have known him longer than she has. Yeah. So they, you know, probably felt similarly to her that like somebody really important is very sick right now. In 2020, they celebrated their 30th anniversary. Trebek wrote in his memoir, quote, She's kept me alive. If it weren't for Jean, I'd have put myself out of this a long time ago. Jeez. Because the treatments had been rough sometimes. He was getting chemo once a week, and it started immediately after his diagnosis. And he said that sometimes it was painful. It made him feel really depressed and wonder if it was worth going through. But he wrote, quote, that would have been a massive betrayal of my wife and soulmate, Jean, who had given her all to help me survive. When he wasn't working on the show, they would take walks together when he felt up for it. They would watch TV or they would sit on their swing in the backyard. Uh, they're, they're kind of spiritual. And so she said, you know, there's a lot of just being thankful for the sun on your face and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alex did continue doing the show, even though sometimes it was hard for him to, you know, concentrate for longer periods of time or to stand for the whole five episode tapings. They started to kind of cut that back a little bit. Gene and Alex would watch Jeopardy together. Gene wrote, quote, of course, he knows most of the answers, but he never tells me. <laughs> That'd be tough, too. I'd be like, no spoilers. Uh-huh. He's like, I know all the answers. You <laughs> find the question. 
And then in 2019, a contestant named Dhruv Gaur from Gainesville, Georgia, wagered $1,995 out of his $2,000 earnings in Final Jeopardy. And for his question, he wrote, What is We Love You, Alex? When Trebek revealed the response, he choked up. He said, quote, Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. But he then caught his composure and said, cost you $1,995, you're left with five bucks. (laughs) Gene later said, quote, you could see him like, oh, don't make me cry here, but I love it. I Mm -hmm. think it meant the world to him. That's nice. Yeah. Alex Trebek continued to host Jeopardy despite his illness. Sam Anderson wrote in New York Times, quote, it was a dignified refusal to surrender to doom. He was the squarest possible existentialist hero, a man who holds the answer to every single trivia question, but not to the great final question of death. And yet he keeps showing up anyway, reading his clues, giving us every last answer he can. Trebek taped his final episode on October 29th of 2020, just over a week before his death on November 8th at 80 years old. He had written in his memoir that, quote, I've got a framed image. Jeannie gave it to me. It's a line from our favorite movie, Wuthering Heights. Whatever our souls are made of, yours and mine are the same. That's the way I look at our relationship. We are one soul in two bodies. On August 19th, 2021, Gene, their two children, Matthew and Emily, and his adopted daughter, Nikki, attended the dedication of the Alex Trebek stage at Sony Pictures Soundstage Studio 10, where Jeopardy is filmed. So they named the stage for him. That's nice. Yeah. And, you know, he said, uh, he said, one thing they'll never say of me is that I was taken too soon. He said, (laughs) "I, I, I did so much, you know. I guess that's true. 80 is a good run. Yeah, and, and, a, and a very full right. 80 years, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's still sad. I mean, especially someone like that, you have to think, was in people's living rooms like yeah. every night oh, for yeah. that long. Yeah. You know, you get you get attached. Yeah. I didn't, I'm, I'm not a religious Jeopardy watcher myself, but mm-hmm. I could see a lot of people being like really affected by that. We watched a lot when I was a kid. Um not every night, but we watched a lot. And, you know, even not having watched for, you know, more of my adult life, mm-hmm. uh, he's still such an icon. He just he really does feel like someone, you know, because yeah. his, his presence, his image is just so ubiquitous and, and present all the time. Yeah. I mean, he hosted Jeopardy my entire life. Yeah. So yeah. he was like, I mean, you, everyone knew him. Like, yeah. he's just such an icon. Yeah, like you say, a pop culture icon. Everyone yeah. knows his name. They know what he sounds like. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you don't watch the show, yeah. he was just such a big part of the culture. Yeah. That, uh, I don't know, even not watching it, I was like, well, they can't get anyone else to host the show. No, like, I, know. <laughs> I, was I know, like, right? I don't trust none of y'all. We we mentioned in the last episode, it, it is mm-hmm. different. It I mean, is. you know, they're, they're both doing a fine job, but you can't help but, right. but you, you know, you don't want to compare, but you can't help but be thinking about Trebek all the time. Right. Which makes me it. think when he took over for Art Fleming, he must have had yeah. a similar like even though Art was a post for way less time, right. obviously, he must have had a similar like everybody's got this guy. Yep. His voice, you know, in their head yep. for this format. And I have to really like make it my own. Yeah. But he had it for 30, you know, I 38 know, right? years or whatever. Like, yeah, uh, like we were listening to the Weird Al Jeopardy song, which I loved growing up. Yes. Um, 
uh, Ruth Dempsey on our Instagram post pointed out that <laughs> that's right. Weird Al was, uh, uh, gave the Jeopardy that bump that the helped Weird bring Al it bump. back. Because <laughs> the Weird Al song references Art Fleming. It was it was the early 80s, so it was pre-Trebek when oh. it came out. Um, but I never saw Fleming myself. Mm-mm. But people did love him. But we all loved Alex Trebek, and uh, we're going to just... Uh, clean up all the onions that someone's been cutting in here. Yeah. I've got to get this lotion sun- sunscreen out of my eye. <laughs> um, but we're going to have some fun when we come back. The Trebeks and the Griffins are certainly not the only love story around Jeopardy. Several couples have met on or around the show. We're going to take a quick look at a few of them right after this break. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men (laughs) because she is on the prowl. 
Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. Okay, so Jeopardy ain't all answers and questions. It's also a total trivia tunnel of love. That's not what I would have thought Uh about it at all. (laughs) (laughs) You can't think of Jeopardy without thinking of getting it on, right? (laughs) Getting all hot and bothered. (laughs) Well, a blog from Jeopardy's website in 2016 says that at least seven couples have formed romantic connections on Jeopardy, and then we found at least two more since then. The earliest that we could find was actually from the Art Fleming days. In 1978, a man named Carlo Pan was selected to be a contestant on Jeopardy. And like we said, they film several episodes per day, so everybody shows up at the beginning of the day, and you kind of figure out when you're going to go on while you're just sitting in the green room. So he shows up, and a bunch of contestants are already packed into that green room, uh, you know, chatting with each other, telling their stories of how they came to be on the show. And in the middle of the room, there was a woman named Deborah telling her story. She said that she absolutely killed it in her test run to get on the show. She was telling everyone that one of her clues had been, this is the longest song title of ASCAP record. Uh, anybody, I'll give you a second. Anybody know the answer to the, or the question to that one? Uh, is there a song version of don't be a menace in South Central while drinking your juice in the hood? Or <laughs> Well, at least as of 1978, it was... How could you believe me when I said I loved you when you know I've been a liar all my life? <laughs> that is a, a okay. Fred Astaire song from the movie Royal Wedding. Oh. So there you well, go. Jane Powell and Fred Astaire. A little victim blaming. <laughs> well, you knew I was a liar, so you're the, it's your fault. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> well, Deborah was telling everyone in the room how they said she was only the second person in the show's history to answer that question correctly. And then, quote, this tall, skinny man with curly hair and a terrible brown suit put his hand out for me to shake and said, I was the first. Game. It was was Carlo. Yep. Game. Yep. Carlo was like, this is the one chance. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best setup I've ever had. There's not. It's not going to come around again. Even if he was interested in Deborah, he's like, let me allow me. (laughs) You don't get a layup better than this. (laughs) For real. (laughs) This is basically scripted. Like I need to I have to take advantage. In an interview published on MansionOnMainStreet.com, Carlos said Deborah had great bright eyes, quote, with such vitality behind them. But Deborah said, quote, 
Carlo kept butting in on the conversation. He had something to say about everything. <laughs> and yet we ended up flirting with each other. <laughs> oh, Deborah. She's like, I couldn't resist. But when network reps saw them flirting, they wouldn't let them compete against each other on the same show. Oh. I say, like, let's not get in the way of this budding romance. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Carlo's turn came first. He lost his episode. But before he left, he slipped Deborah his phone number. Now, she said she didn't think much about it because she was about to go on. Unfortunately, she bombed. But they both live near L.A., so three weeks later, she decided to call him up. They spent their first date at old book and record stores, and it turned out they had a ton of the same interests and tastes. They married in 1985, and Carlos said, quote, We hold each other to high standards. God help you if you tell a joke you've told before. <laughs> Yikes. They're going to get cut down. <laughs> I feel like that's half of marriage. It's like, oh, yeah, I feel like you told me that joke five I've years ago. I heard that one, Carlo. You said it two weeks ago. <laughs> He's like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you weren't listening. Right, yeah. Can you honestly say you're paying attention? Your eyes glazed over. Clearly I was. Well, you didn't laugh. Well, it wasn't funny. Damn, Deborah and Carlo have a hard time. (laughs) Now, in their 2011 interview, they said they still yell at the TV while they watch Jeopardy together. (laughs) Another story. In 1999, Eddie Timonis was the first blind contestant on Jeopardy. When he was only three years old, Eddie had to have an operation to remove tumors from his eyes, and that led to permanent blindness. So when he went on Jeopardy, they made some adjustments, like he would get the category names in Braille before each round, and he had a Braille keyboard to type out his response for Final Jeopardy. But he refused any other accommodations. Jeopardy is largely an audio game, really, when it comes down to it. That's true. They, I was going to say, I'm not sure he needed that many other accommodations. Yeah. But that's cool. He's like, look, just the bare minimum. Right. And they didn't do any video questions during those games either. Oh, yeah. I guess they have the video double. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Apparently, there's a whole team that just makes video Jeopardy questions. They go all over the world. That's cool. What an interesting job. I know, right? Sign me up. (laughs) Well, Eddie won five games in a row, which at the time and up until 2003 was the limit on the number of games you could win. So once you win five, you retire undefeated. I never knew they had a limit. Yeah. And now now it's like, how long can you hold on? Yeah, I guess. well, they love these streaks now, mm-hmm. right? Because everybody tunes in to see, oh, when's the champ going to lose? Yeah. So later, Eddie ended up in a Yahoo message group about game shows, where a high school social studies teacher named Kelly asked him for some ideas on integrating game shows into her teaching curriculum, which to me sounds like she just wanted to talk to this guy, right? Like, <laughs> um, I don't know, how could I put game shows in my classroom. I mean, she might also be a conscientious teacher (laughs) trying to mold the minds of tomorrow. Sure, sure. But yeah, maybe she's like, hmm, what can I ask this Mm -hmm. undefeated champion of Jeopardy? She did say that her mom had nudged her to get to know him. Oh, okay. After his time on the show. (laughs) Good old mom. (laughs) So hard to say if she was like seeking him out. She's a wing mom. Right. (laughs) Guys get wingmen. Ladies get wing moms. Wing moms. (laughs) Well, Eddie must have had some good ideas for her because later he said she, quote, sent me a note thanking me for helping her fill the last few minutes of her class and things progressed from there. Mm. Now, they didn't live near each other. She was like in North Carolina. He was in Virginia. But she had a friend who lived near where he did. And she would go visit her and manage to meet up with Eddie while she was there, which, again, feels to me like... 
Oh, I'm just yeah. in town. What do you know? I happen to be close to you. She's working hard on this. Right. She wrote to an old high school person she hadn't seen in 20 years. It was like, I need to come visit you. Okay. And they're like, who is this again? <laughs> you remember me? I sat next to you on the bus. <laughs> well, Eddie said, quote, it was a lovely walk. I had the sensation that I had just found the one. It would seem she concurred. When I met her parents, her dad told me they kind of knew me already since they'd watched me on TV so many times. <laughs> He was like, surprise, bitch. I'm completely different. <laughs> Just <laughs> I like, cursed like a sailor. Yeah. <laughs> Another couple is two women who actually did compete against each other. Emily and Stacy Cloyd first met in 2009 at an in-person audition for Jeopardy. In an article on Insider by Annetta Constantinitis, Emily said she'd grown up watching the show every night with her parents and joined the Quiz Bowl team in high school. She never really thought she'd compete, but when auditions came to D.C., she figured, I'll give it a shot. And at the audition, there was a coordinator who held icebreakers to help everyone relax. And they asked, quote, who came furthest for the audition? A girl raised her hand, introduced herself as Stacy, and said she'd just graduated from University of Michigan and was moving to D.C. to work for a nonprofit legal clinic. Emily is like... Whoa, hey, I actually just graduated from Michigan and moved to D.C. to work as a climate scientist. And Stacey's like, whoa, crazy. <laughs> but they didn't see each other again for eight months. They both got called to go on Jeopardy and they both flew to Los Angeles. And we kind of described this before, but when you show up for the day, you don't know when you're going to compete or against whom. Mm -hmm. Emily's the one who told us, quote, just before each game, the staff draw the names of two contestants who will go up against the returning champion. Mm. Which it, to me, I learning that the returning champion plays all their games in a row. Yes. That's really intense. So not only if you now I've won two, three, four games, I've got more to film each day and then I got to come back tomorrow and shoot five in a row like Ken Jennings. Yeah. Who won 74 games. What is that like 15 days straight of Good answering Lord. trivia? Do you think it's better like it, you, you're in the zone? Right. Or like maybe oh, I wish a couple months went by. I could read some more books or at least come <laughs> or back tomorrow. I'll get some rest. <laughs> right. Yeah. Your brain's just like, I don't know anymore. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm, my brain is fried. It's so weird because we see it day to day. You assume there's 24 hours in between <laughs> these. Yeah. But no, they're like, we're no. going to take a 20 minute break, get uh -huh. some water and come on back. Mm -hmm. Well, after three games were filmed that day, they drew Emily's name to compete. And then the next name they pulled, of course, was Stacy's. Mm -hmm. The two of them reintroduced themselves. It had been eight months. They didn't really remember each other's names. And then they went head to head. By the end of Double Jeopardy, going into the final round, Emily was in third place with only $400. The returning champion had $1,000. But Stacy was rocking $15,000. Nice. Now, of course, you know that it's anybody's game in Final Jeopardy, but True. that was a tough score to beat because all Stacey had to do was not wager a high enough amount that she could lose, mm. you know, more than the other two could win because you can't bet more than you have. I was about to ask, unless like the returning champion was like, I want to bet 16 grand. But, <laughs> but I, he can't. I, they're like, you don't have it. Right. He's only got a thousand. So the max he could win is two thousand. So as long as Stacey didn't lose more than. Mm. you know, $13,000, then she was fine. Yeah. So, of course, she won, mm -hmm. had that game locked up tight, and uh, and Emily lost. But since they both lived in D.C., they decided they would have a viewing party of their episode together when it aired in March of 2010. By that fall, they were finally dating. 
Even though they both went to University of Michigan and both lived in D.C., they told Jeopardy that it's really unlikely they would have met if it weren't for the show. Yeah. Emily told Insider that some of her friends had to apologize for saying mean things about Stacy while they were competing on the show. <laughs> but that's ride or die, friends. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Stacy was probably like, no, you you got to talk shit about me. Yeah. <laughs> I was 15,000 yeah. in the lead. So. <laughs> you should hear what my friends said about you. I know, right? right. <laughs> they were like, that $400, whatever. <laughs> the returning champ, his friends probably said some terrible things. I know, but he's like, I didn't have to disclose yeah. what they said. <laughs> we're not dating. <laughs> we yeah. had no romance. <laughs> On their first Valentine's Day together, Jeopardy aired the episode where Ken Jennings competed against the IBM computer Watson, which Emily said, quote, was pretty special since it turned out Watson had actually trained on our game. So that's cute. It was like a Valentine's Day gift to them from Jeopardy. Yeah. Emily and Stacy married two years later on June 10th of 2012, and they said that they think Jeopardy is hugely important because, quote, knowledge and expertise and truth are taking a beating these days. But on Jeopardy, they're respected and celebrated. Seeing that people could win for being smart, or at least good at trivia, was important for a kid who preferred reading books to playing sports. Mm. And when they tell their story and people ask them, who won? Emily likes to say, quote, Stacy won the game, but I won at life. Very cute. Cute. Now, there's a bunch of other couples with similar stories. Some of them, you know, fascinating. And some of them are just like, yeah, we were both on Jeopardy. We met. We started dating. We got married. All right. Good for you. Oh, wow. You really (laughs) painted a picture for me. (laughs) But look, I mean, you put a bunch of nerds in a room together. It's going to happen sooner or later, right? I was actually good. I was thinking because earlier I'm like, well, I don't think of Jeopardy as a place to meet somebody. Uh But like every place where you're in a room with people who share at least one interest with you is a possible place to meet people, Uh, at least to be friends. Like, you know, you have something in common. Well, and learning that they've got. okay, so the five five games a day, you know, uh, between 10 and 15 people back sitting in the green room all day. Right. You know, probably a lot of them are sitting there reading a book, but there's going to be some social interaction. Yeah. So, yeah, lots of chances. Mm-hmm. I mean, if only Mayim Bialik and Ken Jennings would get together, that, that'd really put a nice <laughs> button on this episode. So if y'all could just do that. Come the back rival the hosts <laughs> become lo- romance hosts. No, probably not, because Ken Jennings has been married to his wife since the year 2000. Oh. And then I found out that Mayim Bialik's current boyfriend is apparently a writer, poet, filmmaker, and futurist um and i guess apparently the two of them host a podcast together so actually maybe we can get them on the show because that could be a ridiculous romance right there yeah that'd be cool how did mayim bialik and her futurist boyfriend get together did you watch blossom you didn't watch Blossom, no. did you? No, I didn't. I know about the hats but that's about it (laughs) (laughs) i watched it because uh i was in love with six oh yeah yeah. Yeah. Uh, 40% because her name was six. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. Like six her is name a cool is name. a number? <laughs> what? But like if someone's name was four, not as cool. It doesn't work. Sorry. It's like the X sound, I feel. Yeah. Does a lot for helps. six. Right. Right. Because, yeah, I don't, but I'm not thinking of other numbers that work for me as a name. Uh huh. Yeah. Seven. But it sounds like a serial killer. Seven. <laughs> I just think of, uh, I just think of ugh, Kevin Spacey. That's no good. Ooh, head in a box. <laughs> True. <laughs> Nine. Not 
not doing it. I guess I, I have a friend named Trey because he's the third. Oh, yeah. Trey's great. Trey. Yeah. So that's it. But that's he's not called three. Right. You know, that's Trey Although, feels like a cooler way to do it. Three on Ozark. Oh, yeah. Three. Yeah. Was, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I don't know why it worked for me on Ozark. <laughs> I was like, sure. He looks <laughs> right. Like a but three. I didn't find him sexy. No. No. That's true. By I design. mean, he was definitely a child. A, so a child. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better I'm get out of here before glad to hear that. <laughs> before the Canadian Broadcasting Company cancels us. Shuts us down. They're too like salacious. too salacious. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, that's yeah. That that's your Jeopardy love stories. That's the, je- the trivia of Jeopardy love stories. Uh huh. You can you can look up more. There's a bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, these were the most. Uh, th- these are the ones that really stood out to me. Yeah, those uh, are cute. And last I could find, you know, not a lot of up to the date information on them, but it seems like they've all lived happily ever after. Mm-hmm. And it was nice to kind of get to dig through Alex and Jean's life too. Yeah, I never knew that about, and I didn't really know much about Alex Trebek at all. No, until yeah. of course he's sick, and people were doing a lot of retrospectives about his life, right? Sure, sure. and stuff like that. I remember being like, "Oh, there's, you know, he's a really interesting guy," but he just was, I, you know, again, he's like he was famous before people were on Instagram all the time, yeah, inviting you into their home, right, and stuff. So you just had basically just what he was on Jeopardy for yeah. a very long time. You didn't get that kind of insider look at someone's personality the way you do now. I really liked this interview I read with Will Smith a few years back that he said, you know, when I was becoming a movie star, it was all about hiding from your audience. Uh, you you know, you, you couldn't put movies out too often. You couldn't be out there in the press too much because you wanted this air of like, where's he been? Oh, he's here. Let's go see his movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was about sort of restricting people's access to you. And he said, then there was this turn with social media where now it's more like, if you want to be a movie star, you've got to let people into your home and see what your day-to-day life, you know, curated though it may be. Right. Um, and now I can't help but think how much better Will Smith might be doing right now if people <laughs> didn't <laughs> get to see so much of what he was okay. doing. <laughs> I mean, literally, one of the best headlines ever is we should all know less about each other. Yes. <laughs> and I kind of agree. Agreed. There's parts of it that are great and, and very humanizing yeah. and, and so on. But but yeah, it's a lot of it is like, OK, maybe you should just learn how to not talk yeah. about everything yeah. in your life and say every word that comes out of your that comes to your head because <sighs> it's not doing you any favors. If we could only all be more like Alex Trebek. That's right. In so many ways. In so many ways. Yeah. Well, this was really fun to learn about these Jeopardy folks. I yeah. hope that y'all enjoyed this too. Um, one of the f- finest game shows ever. True. Still going strong. Uh, and the thing about trivia is they keep making more of it. <laughs> There's True. always something True. else. <laughs> Facts keep happening. <laughs> they just keep coming as much as I keep saying, please stop. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, let us know what you thought. Reach out with your own suggestions. Uh, tell us if you were on Jeopardy. I think we asked this last time. Yeah. But if you're on Jeopardy, uh, tell us your experience, especially if you got to meet Alex Trebek. If he told you a joke or if he cursed at you. I want to hear about <laughs> it. <laughs> you can find us uh, through email, ridicromance at gmail.com. Right. Or find us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at oh great, it's Eli. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And the show is at Ridic Romance. That's right. And we will be back soon with another fun-filled episode yeah. about these some crazy love stories. That's right. Uh, we'll catch you the next one. Love you. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and dance to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance.
a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.